You have arrived at episode four of season two of the I Save That podcast. This is Ramsey Nasrallah with Ava. And coming up, we're going to be talking to Emily Levy about being a professional patient and a patient advocate. And also Dr. Morad Ishmael about developing a physician champion for advancing vascular access practice. But first, we've got our friend Nancy Moreau here to talk about our next event. Nancy, what's going on on March 22nd? Hello, Ramsey. It's wonderful to be here with Ava. We're going to be having an webinar that will focus on standardizing and streamlining ultrasound-guided PIV insertion with aseptic non-touch technique. It's going to be fun to be able to talk about um, some of the evidence, uh, the AVA transducer guidance, and walk through the information about how to apply aseptic non-touch technique. This is going to be great, Nancy. This is Judy. Hi, guys. And Eric, we've got you on the phone as well, don't we? Yes. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. So Nancy, there's been such a focused interest on one, ultrasound-guided PIVs, but also making sure we insert them sterilely or at least with non-touch technique. Let's talk about that a little bit. What are your thoughts? Well, it's it's interesting to note that the developers of the aseptic non-touch technique saw that the issue of aseptic versus sterile was one that was confusing at best, they were able to show that even applying the term sterile to things like peripheral catheter insertions was probably not accurate. And so the development of the aseptic non-touch technique by Stephen Rowley and by Simon Clare have shown us a way that we can perform this insertion procedure with ultrasound in a way that will be safer to patients. We have to recognize that peripheral catheter insertion is, is definitely the most common invasive procedure performed on patients hospitalized in acute care today. And now with the advent of ultrasound, we have many people performing procedures in ways that we'd have to say are fairly inconsistent. Lots of variation, lots of contamination. And uh, I know that uh, the Association for Vascular Access published transducer guidance and have provided some information to help to guide the practice. But I have to say I've seen it inconsistently applied. So the webinar, we're going to be talking about many of these issues and and blending in uh, the aseptic non-touch technique, the plan, do, study, act way of implementing performance improvement to provide that standardization and consistency so that we can protect our patients. Nancy, I agree with you totally. First of all, I'm excited about the webinar. I'm excited to tell people about it and actually have you give this webinar. I'm thankful that we are sponsored today by Parker Laboratories. Uh, They have been instrumental in creating a product that functions as a protective barrier dressing. The way I understand it, and I've played with this straight, so you would cleanse the skin appropriately, let it dry, apply this the Parker lab drape or the protective drape dressing, and then do your scanning. Is that the way, the concept for? Yes. Okay. So basically, uh, the way that the current AVA transducer guidance document reads is that uh, assessment uh, may not require a sterile cover. So depending upon how the updated transducer guidance document reads, uh, 
the assessment may be done with just a, a, a non-sterile cover of some type, but the assessment is done to identify the vein and to mark the vein. Once the mark is, is placed, then it's easier to use this protective barrier dressing, the, the Parker Ultra Drape, uh, to peel off the back, to stick it and position it so that it's centered on that mark. And then the gel can be applied to the back part of the dressing. The front part of the dressing stands up and allows um, kind of an, an area to hold on to along with the transducer. And then the insertion is done with the dominant hand with the, the catheter into the vein. You visualize it on the ultrasound. Uh, and then there's no cleanup. Uh, you access the vein, see your blood return, perform your, your connection as you normally would, and are able to keep that non-touch technique away from the insertion site. You, you don't have to be wiping up unless you have blood or other things in the area, but you have a pristine insertion area. And once the connections are made, then you peel off the gel layer and then you pull another adhesive layer and the dressing goes directly down on the catheter. It's a real quick and smooth procedure and one that I have to say makes it so easy for me to teach new people with ultrasound guided peripheral access. I was so happy with this product when it first became available because using it in a workshop with hands-on procedure and showing people how to do it. This is so much more efficient than using our standard probe covers and it's cheaper. I would say of the overall process, it cuts down on the insertion procedure by about three to five minutes because you don't have to apply the sterile cover you're going to be using the protective barrier dressing. You don't have to remove the sterile cover. You don't have to clean the insertion site over and over and make sure that the dressing is actually going to stick because of the gel residual. And so overall, it makes it a much cleaner, much more aseptic, and a safer procedure, in my opinion, for patients. Thanks for that clarification on that. And we are grateful to Ava Strategic Partner, uh, Parker Labs, for sponsoring uh, not just this episode of the I Save That podcast, but the webinar that hopefully you'll be able to, to log into and, and attend. And that is going to be taking place on Friday, March 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific. And you can register by going to www.avainfo.org slash Parker Labs. And after the break, we'll chat with patient advocate Emily Libby. Please stay tuned. And now we're joined by Emily Levy, the CEO and co-founder of Mighty Well, as well as a patient advocate and public speaker. She is no stranger to Ava. Emily, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be a part of this. And you have me, but also our Director of Communications and Java Editor-in-Chief, Eric Sager, as well as your buddy, Beth Gore, our Director of Outreach. Yes, thank you both Hi, for Emily. Let's just quickly introducing you to, to the audience. You were diagnosed with chronic neurological Lyme disease as a sophomore in college. And that was really, I think, your introduction into the vascular access world and also 
that of patient advocacy. Could you discuss a little bit about your journey and, and how you got from there to where you are today? Sure. Um, so all throughout my childhood, really starting in the seventh grade, I had um, really some unexplainable signs and symptoms, such as you know extreme fatigue, joint pain, and then as I got to college, um, some neurological symptoms such as brain fog, um, challenges with my speech, and really just kind of forgetting where I was or what I was doing. And uh, by the time I was 19, we finally got an accurate diagnosis from a Lyme literate uh, medical professional. What we believe is that I went undiagnosed for about seven years um, with Lyme disease and tick-borne illness. And yeah, so a really long time where it was just a medical mystery going from doctor to doctor. And finally, you know, once I had an accurate diagnosis and and really the challenge was no one had ever tested me for Lyme. So even though I grew up in a town where it was really riddled by, you know, this um, infectious disease, no one thought, you know, that what I was going through with that because I had such neurological symptoms by that time. So I was a sophomore in college. I went to Babson um, College, which is an entrepreneurship university, and I had a scholarship for women's entrepreneurial leadership. So by the time, you know, my freshman year had been completed, I had really one version of myself, you know, this young, you know, college student um, who got involved with probably way too many things. And by the time I was diagnosed at 19, um, I had to have a pick placed in my arm. Uh, because my neurological symptoms were so bad. And I had a spec scan that showed brain abnormalities in my left frontal lobe. So I had my first pick for six months um, doing IV antibiotics. And this was really just a huge challenge for me because, you know, I, here I was, you know, at my dream school with a scholarship. I had created this one version of myself. And then by the time I had, you know, a pick place, it was a physical reminder of you know, I was actually sick now and people could tell what I was going through because I had to do between two to five uh, IV infusions per day. So I would do them, you know, around campus at um, sorority events. And I just felt like people were treating me as a patient instead of this whole person. Um, So that's really where my journey begins. And it was a challenge because I was just told to wear a cut sock to protect you know, this medical device, which I had just gone through surgery and, you know, all paid all this money out of pocket. Um, so that's what first got me interested in vascular access. And then randomly, I was told by one of my advisors at Babson that there was a local meeting for an AVA network, and it was the one in Massachusetts. And he just encouraged me, he's like, you know, just show up, you know, you're going through this health setback. You should learn about, you know, what is happening to your body and you should meet other people in the industry. So really, that was my first introduction to vascular access and to AVA. And um, that was about three years ago. So it's been a long challenge journey, both with my health, but I'm, I almost, I tell everyone, like, I feel like I found my people at AVA. So I'm really excited to be a part of this. Emily, this is Beth. Your, your story res- resonates with so many people and you make us want to do better. So how can our AVA listeners better help become true patient advocates? Like help us to see the whole person like you're talking about. Thank you, Beth. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I've become most passionate about um, in regards to AVA is that, you know, clinicians see patients as a whole person and not just, you know, a name on a chart or another procedure. At this point, I've had three picks probably hundreds of peripherals, and now I have a port in my chest. So one of the things that I wish all clinicians would would help patients with is really choosing the device that is best for them. Me being a chronically ill patient, 
um, and still really trying to live the most active life I can, you know, was it the best choice for me to have three picks or so many peripherals? So I hope that, you know, clinicians can help patients to advocate, both advocate for both what their lifestyle is and what the best products or device might be for them. That's, that's really a testimony to someone who's been through the vascular access continuum for, for several years now, Emily. You've got this, mm-hmm. you now know what you didn't know before. And in terms of answering Beth's question about patient advocacy, being able to choose different products and, and, and understand the difference between what optimal care looks like and suboptimal care, that takes a while. When, when would you say that you were, you had finally come to a point where you, where you knew what good looks like? How long were you a patient before you realized, hey, this is what's supposed to happen with every interaction and, and this is what yeah, shouldn't happen? Yeah, probably almost about two years um, because I had my first pick for six months and then I was the one who actually wanted it taken out. All my friends were studying abroad and I wanted to do that too. So I said, take this pick out, you know, I'm going to Israel. So that's what I personally chose to do. But when I um, kind of relapsed in my symptoms right after I graduated and I had to have another pick placed. And by this time, you know, I had been involved with Ava for about a year. So throughout that time, um, when I had my second line placed, that's when I started to really understand that there were other products available that, you know, Sometimes what was going on in home care or at the bedside was not actually proper procedure or sterile technique. And that's when I started to become like maniacal about all this because this is my body and this is my lifeline to getting better. So if I know something is not being done correctly, I feel empowered to speak up. But I know that all patients are not in that place. And one, because there's a lack of education about, you know, what these products really are and what they're doing. And oh, by the way, that there's other options than what is just offered to you at the bedside. That is really where I became so interested in this because, like I said, this is my lifeline. This is my body. And, you know, if one thing goes wrong, you know, I don't want to end up back in the ER, ER, whether that's having another procedure or with an infection. You know what the risks are um, because you've, you've sort of seen them. And it took all that time for you to get to this point. Let me let me ask you this. This requires you to go back. A little bit. Let's say that there's a new patient sure. being hospitalized. They've just been admitted and they know nothing. Um, they're, they're dealing with the anxiety of requiring hospitalization. They, they're dealing with the stress of the unavoidable finances behind, oh my gosh, I'm in the hospital. This is going to cost money. Oh, yeah. my, my, my life is not going exactly the way from a health standpoint that it should be because I'm now in this hospital. Can you come up with three or four things that you would tell a, a newbie green patient who's dealing with that anxiety, what should they be looking out for when it comes to infection prevention and vascular access? What, just, just a few things to look out for, make sure that this happens or this doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, number one, you know, is sterile technique being followed and they probably, you know, don't know exactly what that is, but simple things like, is the clinician, you know, washing their hands, you know, did they scrub the hub? You know, I've experienced things where that didn't happen, you know, at local hospitals. Um, and that's kind of before I knew anything. So empowering patients just to speak up about like simple things like washing, you know, their their hands or scrubbing the hub long enough. Um, and then two, I think it's really having someone with you while you're going through this process because for us, you know, whether we were just given um, medication for sedation or you know we're just so overwhelmed by the whole medical process really encouraging patients to have someone with them, whether that's a friend or family member of the hospital who can help really explain to us 
what is going on. And then three, I would love to see, you know, the conversation around like, what is this patient's lifestyle? You know, if they're just going to be in the hospital for two weeks, you know, maybe that's one case where they would use one medical device. But if this is a patient who is going to be chronic and, you know, they are fairly active, you know, why are we placing a midline? You know, those are all kind of things that I've seen in my patient advocacy work and talking to patients around the country. So those three things really come top of mind. So just to recap, that's sterile technique and procedure, two, having an advocate with you, and then three, you know, what is the lifestyle of the patient and is the device replacing really the best one for them? I think those things have helped me to be successful in managing my line. That's great guidance. The, the lifestyle piece especially, right? E- each patient has their own background. They have their own line of work. Have their own story. Absolutely. And that's often not taken to, into account, um, you know, from all of the people that I've talked to throughout the past three years. The whole, this is, this gets said a lot in vascular access. The, the, the activity of stick, pick, and run does not pay much regard to, well, ideal process, but also for, for insertion, but, but also the patient. You have a port now. That Talk about yeah. the difference between having a port versus having had picks in so many IVs. And part of the reason I had to get a port is because I lost access in my arms. Like, if you see my my arms, you're like, oh, you have beautiful veins, and then, you know, try to stick them at this point. For me, that's almost, like, devastating that my my veins have been compromised because I know it's a really long um, time before they heal or, you know, if they even will at all. So I'm um, very happy that I finally got a port, um, and really it was from being around people at Ava who were, like, asking me, you know, why don't you have a port given um, your lifestyle and, you know, the frequency of your infusion. So now um, I do IVIG every week. So that's why I still need a port because it was taking almost an hour and we were between three and five sticks to get me access with a peripheral. Um, So that was, you know, that's really just unacceptable. And it was my home care nurse who helped to advocate for me to get a port because she was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm not sticking you anymore. Like, I'm way over my limit already. So in terms of, you know, all of the different devices that I've had, having three picks was a challenge, especially because uh, I had two of them while I was still in college. So challenges like, you know, getting dressed on my own or taking a shower in a dorm room, you know, those are probably all things that clinicians don't really think of when the patient has to go home. But, you know, in terms of how frequently I needed infusions, um, you know, because I was pretty much hooked up all day, uh, every day, you know, a pick I felt like was a good choice. But if my real challenge is when it, is, when it came to peripherals. Um, when I had my last pick removed because I was done with IV antibiotics and I still was just going through IVIG, you know, it was so much anxiety around getting stuck every week and then knowing, you know, what was happening to my veins, you know, the deep, the degradation of them was hard for me to kind of just like accept. Whereas like on the one hand, as a patient, you're like, I just need my treatment. You know, I just want to get started. You know, I have this person in my home and I know that they're also like on a time crunch, kind of just added to like all the stress in the back of my mind. Um, but now that I have a port, you know, I've learned to deaccess it on my own. Next step for me is learning to access it on my own. Um, my fiance has learned to do that as well. So if, like I need help, he can do that. And, you know, I'm able to swim and take a shower because I only need it accessed two days a week at this point. So I'm very grateful that I, I have that lifeline and it's giving me a better quality of life. It's tremendous, like to hear the the evolution of the anxiety, but then just needing the treatment to then having the awareness that 
hey, the people treating me also have places to go, understanding the, the, the gravity of venous depletion and how important your veins are, and, and then ultimately having influence from Ava on and getting mm-hmm. a port. I have one mm-hmm. more question before, before we let you go. I already asked you about uh, what advice you'd give to a new pa- a green patient coming into the hospital, what to look out for just out of their own interest. And, and you, you give some great, great feedback. What advice would you give to the new chronic patient who, like you, is, is now living with uh, requiring infusions as, as a daily or weekly reality of, of a condition they have? Uh, what, what guidance would you give to them about their lifestyle and what they can do to, to live their best life, to, be, to live beyond just having a, a disease, but rather to, to, to live well? And, you know, that's exactly how I live my life. I'm like, you know, living with chronic conditions, this is a piece of my life, but this is not my entire life. Um, you know, I still have dreams and goals just as a young female entrepreneur outside of my life as a patient. So anyone who's kind of entering this new phase, it really requires a complete lifestyle adjustment. And that's not just you, you know, that's your family and friends having to understand that, you know, maybe you can't, you know, go out to a bar on a Friday night just because of exhaustion or your infusion schedule or family members kind of having to adjust that maybe like you might need some extra help with things like showering or getting dressed or driving you to doctor's appointments. Um, but I'd say the big one is, you know, finding your community uh, early on. I've been so thankful for all of the people that I've met, whether that's at AVA, or INS, NHIA, or just, you know, simply people on social media who are going through the same thing. I think as, you know, a chronically ill patient, um, you often don't see other people in your life, in your immediate life, who are going through the same challenges. So really trying to find, you know, your community early on is is just a huge piece for mental health. Thanks, Emily. Uh, Beth, you got one last mm-hmm. thing to, to add before uh, we go? You had that, that magic wand that we all wish we had. You know, what would you really like to see change in vascular access for patients? Where do we go from here? What's the sky? Where's the limit for us? If I had a magic wand, um, I wish all patients, you know, from the very beginning, you know, we talk so much about informed consent, but like, you know, what does that really mean? And even though I'm sure, you know, I participated in it, in it, you know, from day one with getting that line, I really don't think I understood what was going on with me. So if there, you know, was, whether it's someone that came in to the bedside and, you know, before they placed, you know, the device, we evaluated my lifestyle and I was taught, you know, everything I needed to know, but then I also had like videos to take home. I think that would have been, you know, just really important. Um, because like I said, when you're going through this, these procedures, you're just so overwhelmed. You know, there's no way, like, even if you're taught everything, there's no way that you can remember it. Um, so if I could go home, you know, videos, whether that's from Ava or INS or just, you know, a credible source, um, and then that someone came, you know, to my bedside before all of this was going on to make sure what was being placed was really the best um, for me that, and, you know, showed me that, you know, there were other products out there that didn't come in a kit, but were better to help me manage um, my care. And one of the things I'm so proud of is like, I've never had a line infection, you know, I've never even had to use, you know, cast flow or anything like that, because I learned, you know, from Ava, all of this, everything that I should know, you know, I have become a model patient. And obviously not every patient, you know, wants to know everything, but I think there are a good number of patients, especially those who are dealing with chronic conditions, 
who want to know every single thing that's happening to them. Um, so the easier that AVA or another association, you know, can help facilitate that for patients, I think would be huge. There's complications and we don't even know where to go with it. And what you're talking about, right? there aren't, you're able to avoid those complications before they even happen. That proactive piece that I think mm -hmm. is really missing in healthcare. That's been our biggest thing is, is when we knew to do better, we did better. Right. When you can be proactive instead of reactive, like we all know that saves cost, time, you know, and, and pain. <laughs> because I think Absolutely. like we have, we forget like these procedures are very painful. Like I don't care if you get lidocaine, you know, or any other kind of numbing medication, this still hurts. Um, and as we've talked about, you know, the preservations of veins are just so important. And I don't think patients um, really fully understand that. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Emily. She is Emily Levy, CEO and co-founder of Mighty Well. Uh, I hope that uh, you are feeling mighty well today and that uh, our listeners, especially our patients and patient advocates have been inspired by your message for, for how to live your best life and not be defined by a disease. Thank you so much, uh, Ava, for having me. You know, I'm so grateful that you started to integrate the patient perspective and incorporated many more voices beyond my own and i'm looking forward you know to helping this organization grow and doing whatever i can you know to help more patients like myself and we now have the pleasure of being joined by dr murad ishmael the chief of critical care medicine division and program director of pulmonary critical care fellowship at St. Joseph's University Medical Center, as well as the Assistant Professor of Medicine in New York Medical College and the Co-Director of the Simulation Lab. Dr. Ishmael, I have Judy Thompson, Ava Director of Clinical Education on the line here, as well as Ava CEO, Ramsey Nasrallah, who I understand you met not too long ago, uh, but I wanted to say thank you very much for joining us to talk to us on our podcast today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Good morning, Dr. Ishmael. I'm so glad you joined us today for this interview that we're going to be using on our podcast. Um, also, the person you just spoke to, that's Eric Seger. He is our the editor-in-chief of our journal, as well as everything else to do with communication. So um, uh, we're in great company. Oh, thanks for oh, introducing thank me. I, I totally forgot. I introduced everybody else except myself. Thanks, Judy. <laughs> oh, no problem, Eric. So, Dr. Ishmael, first of all, I, I would, had the pleasure of meeting you at our annual scientific meeting in Ohio this year where you and Matt Ostroff spoke about the novel new use of the mid-thigh for the insertion of the central venous access. And I'm excited to talk to you about that. What I'd like to start with is I'd like you to give us a brief description of the process that you, Matt, and St. Joe's went through when investigating mid-thigh placement for the use of, of central venous access devices as a, a new new location that we could use where generally the population says stay away from the fence. It actually was a very uh, interesting uh, process because prior to that, we had a lot of patients that we had no other choice but placing upper extremity central lines or pick lines knowing that they are not the best option. Like for example, patients that we were trying to do limb preservation for, like the required dialysis, or patients who are severely contracted, or patients with tracheostomies and a lot of discharge at the site. But having no other option, 
we were literally cornered in having to either place central lines, which are not tunneled, or lines near areas of infection or losing a vessel that can be useful in the future. Matt actually came and approached me as I was supervising him in his procedures, and he suggested, why don't we try to use the mid-thigh and use the femoral vein instead of uh, using the common femoral vein for central lines, which is basically frowned upon because of risk of infection and a lot of people trying to stay away from it. And it was a very good idea, and he made the case clear that it is a much larger uh, sized vein with a better catheter to vein uh, ratio. And hopefully with that, we can have lesser risk of DVT as well as lower risks of infection. And because he had a very clear point and it was very well thought of, we decided that we will have to try to uh, do that. And we wanted to start with patients who are going to be safe and require it for a very short period of time so that we can uh, avoid having any complications. I had the pleasure of talking to our quality team and everybody was clear that since we are not doing a procedure that can be harmful for the patient, then it is okay to do it as long as we have informed consent and as long as it is under the supervision of the physician. And that's where I started with Matt and we started placing our uh, mid-thigh catheters. And with the first uh, catheter, we try to be very short duration so that we wanted to avoid the risk of any infection and we do not want to have the process aborted from the beginning because of complications. It was very interesting that with time we saw that like literally when we started the project in 2015, Matt put four thigh femorals uh, for the whole year. In 2016, we were able to get one more. But once we started like going full force and after I was able to supervise him and then sign him off to do them, in 2017, he did, uh, I believe, 20 mid-thigh femorals. And in 2018, he did more than 140 or 150 already. And with time, as we went on doing them, we saw that there is more and more and more patients that are actually benefiting from that. And otherwise, it would have been a very difficult uh, option for us to uh, put a catheter for them. So between patients who are contracted, patients who have superior vena cava syndrome or uh, tracheostomy, as I mentioned, that is having continuous discharge or leaking in the area. Patients who are either dialysis candidates or on dialysis with a fistula and were trying to preserve the other side, just if they needed dialysis fistula on the uh, uh, contralateral side. And it was amazing, actually, the different cases that 
uh, were benefiting from it, um, let alone cases that Matt uh, is doing in pediatrics where uh, very little babies that it was almost impossible for anybody to get access on them. And he was able to uh, get us access and be safe and at the same time uh, efficient. And with that, we have very low infection rate and low DVT. I believe the idea, it was actually brought up by Matt. And I honestly believed in his idea. It was very well thought of. And um, we started the process and we started on very controlled subjects. And then we have started expanding as the process uh, rolled. That is a great story. From the concept to the implementation of this, it sounds so methodical and well thought out. Is this a process you've used in other situations as a mentor? Yes, uh, and that is something that is actually um, one of the benefits of uh, being in healthcare education. So uh, part of the education as well as mentoring processes is the graded milestone-based education. So we, I do, for example, for the critical care fellows or for the residents when we teach them about uh, new procedures or new protocols, uh, we do what we call direct observation, where we are at the bedside and present with them during the procedures. And then there is a second level of observation, which is called indirect observation with immediate availability. So now, as I have confidence that you can do the one, two, three steps, I can let you start do it doing it but i am next to you and can be at the bedside within a minute or two so uh, for example i am in the nurse's station when you're in the room or i'm in the room next door when you're in the room and as uh, you gain more experience and we have more and more skill then we can do indirect supervision with availability so in other words, not immediate availability. So I can be somewhere in the building and if you need me, you can call me and I can come and help you. But that is going to take some time and it is expected to be less frequent. And then at the end of that, it can be mentoring and review of cases. So the last step is basically when you're completely as a vascular tech signed off from my point that you can do procedures, you can come every two weeks or then later on, maybe every month and review with me the cases that you've done. We can go over any issues or complications that you were worried about and go over any obstacles or hurdles that you might have met so that we can uh, overcome it. So we do this for procedures for residents. We do it for fellows, and it is a graded, we call it like milestone-based. You hit a milestone, and then you're weaned off a little bit of the closer supervision and so on and so forth. So what would happen in the situation to where there was a complication? Because in procedures such as this, procedures do happen, or complications do happen. 
whether it's the result of the clinical error or because of the presentation of the patient. So what would be your process in the event of a complication? Well, the pro- like complications, as you mentioned, complications happen. And as long as we're doing due diligence and doing appropriate technique to prevent the complication from happening, it is still a known possibility. Like, and that happens also with central lines, with like regular dialysis catheters done by IR or, or interventional radiologists or by surgeons or medical physicians. So as long as you have the appropriate technique and appropriate uh, sterile protocol, appropriate visualization of the vessel, and protocol in insertion and confirmation of the site, then we already communicate that to the patients and uh, in our consenting process. and. Hopefully, we don't face that, but it can happen, and it is something that we monitor from that point onward. We try to uh, avoid, and that's where the direct supervision is, uh, having any possible omission errors where we would do something that we should not be doing or do something forcefully, for example. And I think one of the key things is having a good collaboration between the vascular access uh, technician and their collaborating physician because it is across the board that you will face a situation where you are unable to do something or don't know what to do. And instead of forcing something or pushing like the catheter or uh, thinking that, okay, probably it didn't happen such and such, and not talk about it. If you feel comfortable talking to your mentor, you will be able to bring it up and you will be able to ask for help. And that way you can actually avoid complications. But again, does this mean that we would never have complications? That's not the case. The complications happen, we face it, and we explain it to the patient or in the patient's families that this is an unfortunate complication that we try not to have, but it is possible. Uh, and so far we have had very low incidence of uh, infections and DVTs compared to the um, other procedures. So it's same like any other lines that you would have a complication, we face it and communicate it the same way, but we always uh, monitor them so that we make sure that we are not exceeding uh, our benchmark or our expected numbers so that we don't uh, miss an alarming uh, signal of more complications. Now, I have one final question for you, and um, you've kind of led me right into this direction. What would you say makes a successful mentor-mentee relationship? Well, I believe a successful mentor-mentee relationship is a successful team player and coach. I believe that it has to be believing in your mentee and be willing to give them room to practice while you are in 
ensuring the patient's safety and ensuring that they are capable of what they're doing. And having a very open relation with them so that they feel comfortable coming and communicating their concerns, or if, God forbid, there is a complication, they feel comfortable that you're going to be willing to listen to them, support them, and guide them through that situation and not give up on them because of a complication. So it has to be very important to, they know that you are going to be reassuring and supportive as well. And on the other side, it has to be a mentee that is very reliable and honest because one of the key things about supervision is that I would give you more and more autonomy as I see that you gain the skill and I can trust you. So it is very important to have this willingness to trust and leave the mentee grow and gain experience. And at the same time, for the mentee to show responsibility and honesty in communication, because those are key things in uh, cases like that. Wow. <laughs> Dr. Ishmael, from the practice I've seen at your hospital to the just talking to you and do- talking to Dr. Connolly, I am just so impressed with your mentorship process, the folks you have there, and the practice of you have such a consultative practice in vascular access. And I'm just honored to talk to you guys. And I hope the country sees the changes and the way you guys have mentored in new techniques, new practices, and the way that you you see your patients in vascular access, that you truly have a practice to be emulated. And I'm excited for Ava to partner with St. Joe's to come up with hopefully some education that could be used across the country. And I know that you you are the co-director of the Simulation Center at St. Joseph's. And I'm excited to what the future is going to bring with a collaboration between Ava and you and your hospital. So I can't thank you enough for your time and your practice and your attitude about mentorship. As a clinician, I'd so be honored to go play with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hi, everyone. Eric here again with a look at what's on deck in the world of Ava Networks. On Thursday, March 7th, four events graced the calendar. In Oklahoma City, Oakvan welcomes Cindy Salem for a presentation on evidence-based decisions using cath flow for CVCs and midlines. That event will take place at the Ranch Steakhouse and starts at 6 p.m. local time, just like UVAN's meeting in Salt Lake City the same night. Shelley DeVries is set to lead a discussion on infection prevention with midlines as the central focus at Cucina Toscane. Also Thursday, Minivan hosts Kathy Kokotis at 5.30 p.m. local time for its March Education Dinner centered on vascular access change in practice at the Hilton Minneapolis Bloomington. An Ozark van then looks to Mary Smith to answer the question, Midline catheters, what are they and why do we need them? That meeting starts at 6.30 p.m. local time. A week later, on March 14th, 
Ivan and Sojan also host their network dinners. Ivan explores an approach to treating relapsed or refractory acute lymphoblastic leukemia at Gibson's Bar and Steakhouse in Rosemont, Illinois, with Margaret Green. The same evening, Michelle Biscossi outlines decreased vascular access complications and the positive impact that they have on patients, clinicians, and healthcare settings at Valari's Lakeside Restaurant in Sicklerville in New Jersey. And don't forget to head to www.avainfo.org slash parkerlabs to sign up for the webinar focused on standardizing and streamlining ultrasound-guided PIV insertion with the aseptic non-touch technique that we chatted about earlier in this episode. That is scheduled for Friday, March 22nd at 2 p.m. Eastern. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. The information discussed on the I Save That podcast is solely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information that we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the fair use doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this video or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent of the Association for Vascular Access.